0: Hello in this week's show, a wonderful coral reef discovery in the South Pacific and the not-so-wonderful countrywide jobs crunch in Afghanistan as the economy nosedives. In Africa, there's been a significant drop in new cases of COVID, the UN Health Agency has said, but it's no time for complacency. And searing memories of the Holocaust by the last remaining survivors, as told to film producer Sophie Nome plus a famous poem by Mario Benedetti to put everything into context. All this and more in this week's UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with Solange bejategui Cortes and me, Daniel Johnson. Thanks for listening. First, the news. More than half a million people have lost or been pushed out of their jobs in Afghanistan since the Taliban takeover, the UN international labour organisation ILO has found. In a warning about huge losses in jobs and working hours since the de facto authorities took control last August, the ILO said on Wednesday that women workers have been hit especially hard. By the middle of this year, job losses could even reach 900,000 as a result of the economic crisis in Afghanistan and restrictions on women's participation in the workplace. For the first time since the Omicron fueled fourth COVID wave began, Africa has seen a significant drop in new cases and a promising dip in reported deaths. That's the message on Thursday from the UN Health Agency, which said that cases fell by 20% in the week to the 16th of January, while deaths dropped by 8%. World Health Organization Regional Director for Africa, Dr. Machi Simweti, said that there have now been more than 10.4 million cases of COVID-19 on the African continent and over 234,000 lives lost as a result of the pandemic.
1: While the impact of this latest peak has been moderate, the continent has yet to turn the tide on this pandemic, so there is no room for complacency. So long as the virus continues to circulate, further pandemic waves are inevitable. Africa must not only broaden vaccinations, but also gain increased and equitable access to critical COVID-19 therapeutics to save lives and
2: effectively combat this pandemic.
0: Dr Muetti said that while four African sub-regions reported a fall in new infections, cases have spiked in North Africa by 55 percent. In particular, Tunisia and Morocco have seen an exponential increase, overtaking South Africa as the countries with the most cases on the continent. Finally, one of the largest coral reefs in the world has been discovered by a UN-supported scientific mission off the coast of Tahiti. Announcing the stunning find on Thursday, UNESCO said that divers had explored large rose-shaped corals spanning some three kilometers at depths of between 30 and 65 meters. Early indications suggest that the reef's depth has protected it from bleaching caused by global warming. French lead diver Alexei Rosenfeld, and founder of the One Ocean campaign, described seeing the rose corals stretch as far as the eye can see. It was like a work of art, he said headlines there. And now to this week's interview, which comes ahead of Holocaust Victims' Remembrance Day on Thursday the 27th of January. This year, UN Geneva is hosting a free screening of a documentary film called Les Derniers, The Last Ones, and it features testimonies by survivors of the Nazi death camps, all interviewed by Sophie Noem, who tells us why she decided to embark on this project and what its message is.
1: Okay, so why I started La- le dernier? Um, it's because a few years ago, I met with the Holocaust survivor. His name was Jacques. And I just realized that he was already maybe almost 90 and that my kids, when they'll be grown enough to ask questions about this period, won't have the opportunity to meet witnesses And I thought that to get into that story, you need to meet someone, to hear someone saying their story. So I wanted to create a link between the new generations and the last witnesses. So that was the beginning. And also when I met those people, I realized that they were really heroes, but not because they survived. Because surviving Auschwitz, for instance, was, there was no chance to survive. They were supposed to die like the other ones. Maybe 2% people survived in Auschwitz. So that's a miracle. But, uh, and that's really like luck. But afterwards, they had nothing. They had to lose everything. They were destroyed physically and psychologically. They didn't have family, money, nothing. And they built a life after that. And that was the second reason, is that I think their message is really a message of empowerment for the new generation. You know, it's like if they did it, maybe you should try.
0: Of course. And it is inspiring that they managed to live with the aftermath of escaping from a death camp. And I just want to go back there. You said it was a chance encounter with one of the survivors. If you hadn't met Jacques, would this project not have happened?
1: Yeah, maybe, but um, it's possible. Yeah, maybe, but um, I met him um, during a documentary film that I was already directing about Auschwitz. So it wasn't random. It wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't just by chance in the streets.
0: And this meant that you got into contact with many survivors of the death camps and you can find them all online. You've also mentioned that it was very difficult for them in the years following their exit from the camps. What kinds of things were they telling you about their experiences, just so that it's out there for the record?
1: Yeah, all kinds of experiences. Uh, some, most of them were uh, arrested in France during the Raffle du Valdive. Um, they were arrested in France somehow. Most of them were deported to Auschwitz, but there are many, many, many different camps and, and story. So it's hard to summarize like that. What's very common is more the aftermath. It's like they all had nightmares for years. They all had very big difficulties to decide to have children in a world where that's possible. It took them years to get back on their feet. They lost everything. So, you know, and during the camps, what can I say? There are many, many examples, you know, they worked like slaves uh, in the cold. Uh, um, in Auschwitz, it was sometimes minus 20 degrees. They didn't eat. They were beaten up. Some people were just using them like, you know, like toys. They were playing with their nerves and they were uh, like waking them up in the middle of the night to put them outside in the cold, naked, and, and spread them cold water or do... One told me that there was always someone coming in the night and asking them to do what, what he was calling gym. It was like exercise in the middle of the night in the snow. It was worse than being animals. Uh, they didn't have any identity. They were numbers, even between them, they had to call each other by their numbers. And what's really interesting, I think, is to realize what human being is capable of doing. That's the main, I think, interest of the project, is that human nature is capable of doing that to human beings. And what's really scaring is that how much this machine was sophisticated. There were so cynical. It's like, for instance, some of them would tell me that before getting to the gas chamber, they were giving people numbers of, um, you know, um, hangers to put the clothes on. Clothes hangers? Yes. So they were saying to them, please remember the number of your hangers so you can get back your stuff afterwards. So it was like that. It was like, you know, they didn't want any rebellion. So they were lying all the time to the people, trying to reassure them. To... So people were walking to the gas chamber because they didn't imagine that. Uh...
0: Was there anything that you discovered and learned that was... I mean, it all sounds horrific, but was there anything in particular that stood out? Because we all have an image of what might have happened during these death camps, but you actually heard it first person. So was there really one story that stuck out for you?
1: It's hard. You know, I I met around um, 80 people now, 90 maybe. I interviewed 80 or 90 people. And, uh, you know, what I can say is that every time I go to meet someone, they tell me their story. It's like if it was the first time for me. Of course, there are patterns, there are things that I know. But to listen to that, it's like every time you don't believe it. And denial is so easy because it's really unbelievable. You listen to the stories. And you never get used to it. It's like every time they tell me the story, it's like, it's the first time, you know, and I try to be strong and, you know, do the job and listen to them for like four or five hours. And I'm really totally focused. So I really don't want to miss anything. I'm trying to ask as many questions as possible and to, but sometimes... It's hard and I don't know if there is one story that I can tell that is really different, something, but I can tell you a a scene that I heard lately and I have kids that are now nine and seven. My daughter is nine and my son is seven. And there was a man that I met a few weeks ago and he told me that he lost his siblings during the war, his sister and his brother, who were exactly my kid's age. And that what he knows is that they got into the gas chamber holding hands, and that's a scene. It's like it's the moment in the old project when I really thought that I had to stop. Like, I, I thought now I can't do more. I have to, you know, it's too much for me. But all the stories are unbelievable and, and horrible, and I don't know what to say.
0: <laughs> and final question to you. A lot of people would say that the Holocaust happened because these plans by the Nazis weren't taken seriously. Do you think moving forward that lessons learned... There are things that we should be looking out for today because there is still hate speech. We're told there's rising hate speech, particularly on the Internet, which is no less dangerous.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that the tragedy of that is that the survivors, they try to warrant humanity. They're trying to have people realize what happened and stop being in denial. Um, Now they are facing the fact that it didn't work. And the thing is, it's not about the Jews. It's about everyone in general. The denial in front of a threat is still the same. So the problem, I think, is that is that, you know, uh, those uh, survivors, they're not so worried about the fact that there is hatred because there will always be hatred. And they don't believe and they never believe that antisemitism would stop or racism would stop or hatred would stop. But what's really scary to them and to me, and the tragedy of that, is that no one reacts to that. No one reacted before and no one still reacts. And that's the real danger.
0: My thanks to Sophie Nahum. And just to say that the free screening of Les Derniers that I mentioned earlier is at 6 p.m. on Thursday, the 27th of January. For more details, search online for Cine ONU and UN Geneva. Now, let me turn to our regular guest, Solange Pejategui-Cortez, who's been listening to the interview with Sophie. As we'll hear, it sparked memories of campaigning Uruguayan poet Mario Benedetti. Hi, Sol.
2: Hola, Daniel. I think one of the lessons we can take from Sophie Naum's film project with Holocaust survivors is that we have to defend memory from its greatest adversary, forgetfulness. We have to keep memories alive. So that what happened in those death camps does not happen again, we have to become the new witnesses. Silence is not an option. In one of the interviews chosen by Sophie Nahum, Lucette, one of the survivors, tells how just three years ago, during a demonstration in Paris, she heard people shouting under her window: Mort aux juifs, dead to Jews, Daniel." Hate speech is a global virus. Recently in Bosnia and Herzegovina and in Serbia, some people were glorifying atrocity crimes and convicted war criminals while singing nationalistic songs. In response to this and other violence, the human rights office said that the rise in hate speech, the denial of genocide and the glorification of war criminals highlight the failure to comprehensively address the past. In another testimony that Sophie heard, Robert told her that on the 8th May, 1945, at the age of 15, he cried when he learned the war was over. He will never forget those tears. We should never forget your tears either, Robert. When I was 15 years old, I discovered a wonderful Uruguayan poet, Mario Benedetti. One of his most beautiful and strong poems is called Hombre Preso Que Mira a Su Hijo. In English, this means the prisoner who looks at his son. In the poem, writing from his cell, a father tells his son about the horrors of dictatorship. Here are the last lines My son, even if you are a few years old, I have to tell you the truth so you don't forget. Cry, my son. It's not true that men do not cry. Here we all cry. We scream, we sniffle, we shout, because it's better to cry than to betray. Cry, but do not forget.
0: Thank you, Solange. Mario Benedetti is a new one on me, I have to say, but his lines really stuck with me from the poem. It's one thing to die of pain, another thing to die of shame. And on that sobering note, it just remains for me to thank you for being with us, listeners, and to say that we have that really good news story next week, that coral find, an interview with one of the marine scientists who discovered it off the coast of tahiti and I hope you'll join us for that. Don't forget, though, for more news and interviews, just check out UN News and the Audio Hub. That's it then. Bye-bye for now.